Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 as we uh, continue our series in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Uh, we'll look this morning at Philippians 3, 12 through 16. If you're using a uh, one of our hardback Bibles, our pew Bibles, it would be a pew Bible if we had pews. Uh, it's a box Bible because we carry them around in a box. That just sounds like not the way you should say that. So... Uh, It's on page 981, Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Uh, You're used to this. It's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, So let me ask that you do that now. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would teach us, grow us, change us, conform us more and more into the image of Christ through this, Your Word. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, the church is full of hypocrites. That's the, that's the objection you get far too often. Why would I go to church? Why should I bother going to church? The church is full of hypocrites. Oh, oh you church people are all alike. The church is just so full of hypocrites, I'm not interested in listening to anything you have to say. I, I, I'm not going to bother going to church because why would I want to associate with that crowd? That's the objection that far too often we hear about the church. In their minds, they think, when people raise that objection, well, Christians think they're so great and then their lives don't match up. Why would I want to be a part of that? Christians think they're so wonderful They think they're so much better than everyone else. Why would I want to be a part of that? Because clearly when you watch them, they're not different at all. I don't see any difference at all. Why would I want to associate with the church in that way? That's the argument. That's that's the That's the gist of the argument, or at least that one particular argument, against Christianity, against the church. In a lot of ways, that's the argument Paul addresses in this passage. That that wasn't exactly the issue at the church in Philippi. It's not like he's addressing that argument specifically, but this passage has something to say about how you and I might respond 
to that objection, that argument uh, against the church today? Uh, What would Christian maturity look like? Should it look like people who um, look down their noses at everyone outside of the church because, quite honestly, we are better than everyone else? Or should it look different? Should it it have a, a different look to it? Paul begins in this passage, he takes a quick glance at himself in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. Well, I mean, in some ways you want to complain. Well, Jeff, did you start in the middle of a paragraph? Did you start in the middle of a sentence? Did you start in the middle of a thought? Because the this has to have something. It has to mean something. We have to back up to the previous passage to find out what he even means by this. What is it that he hasn't obtained? You just back up a verse. And you find out that what he longs for is Christ. He longs to know Christ. He wants to, to, to know Christ and the power of His resurrection that by any means possible He may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul longs for Christ the resurrection, sinless perfection. That, that's, what he, that's what he wants. That's what he, that's what he longs for. And he takes a quick look at himself and in verse 12 has to go, well, let me recognize something. I'm not there yet. I have not yet gotten that. I have not yet obtained that kind of sinless perfection. I'm not perfect yet, he says. I Not that I've obtained this or am already perfect. I'm not there. It's what I want. It's what I long for. But I haven't gotten it yet. Of course, Paul doesn't expect it in this life. Paul Paul doesn't expect to gain that level of sinless perfection short of death, short of the return of Christ, short of his own bodily resurrection. Sinless perfection comes to those who are in Christ only after the resurrection from the dead or Christ returns, whichever comes first. I remember Monty. I never knew Monty's last name. Do you remember? She just reacted. I didn't tell her I was going to use Monty as no. Monty was a traveling preacher guy 125 years ago when we were in college, when we were at Clemson. And Monty would stand outside of, typically in front of the library, and presumably preach. There were some brave souls that decided to engage him in conversation. Most of us just tuned him out and walked on by. He claimed that it had been years since his last sin. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure somebody went until just now. Until you said that. Now you're starting your count over again, right? There are those that, that actually teach, that actually believe you can reach a level of sinlessness, of perfection in this life. And, and those... Teachers have come and gone over the centuries. Movements here and there of various names and shapes and sizes. 
there are those that believe, that have believed, that you can reach some level of maturity, that real true Christianity leads to fully conquering sin in this life. And if you aren't there yet, then, well, you need more faith. You need to try harder. You need blank. You know, you can test those people. Take their phone. Take something that belongs to them. Step on a toe. You know, as you're walking by, just kind of give a stomp on their toe. You can test them because their reaction will give away whether they're actually serious or not. And and when they react harshly in anger and respond to that test, you say, well, clearly you don't understand sinless perfection. Paul is an apostle. Paul had this blinding light Damascus Road experience. In fact, it's, it's our sort of euphemism for some drastically changed life. I had the Damascus Road experience. What do you mean? Well, that's Paul. You're, Paul's an apostle. Paul writes so much of the New Testament. Paul corrected Peter. You know Peter um, on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus said to Peter. Paul says, hey Peter, your theology's wrong. They had an argument, they had a debate, a discussion. That's in part what's going on in part of Galatians. That Paul, the apostle, the one who could fix Peter's theology, says, I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained that yet. I haven't gained that sinless perfection. I haven't experienced the resurrection from the dead. I want it. I long for it. I seek it. But I've not yet gotten it. Maybe maybe these false teachers were already in Philippi. Maybe there were people teaching these things. Maybe there were people arguing even on behalf of Paul. Well, Paul surely is sinless by now. Paul is... I'm, I'm not there. I, I'm, I'm not there yet. Maybe that's why Paul felt the need to, to point this out. In fact, if you look back at verse 6, you know, he just went through the litany of all those things he once counted as righteousness, which now he counts as rubbish, or dung is the, the word he uses. And in that, in verse 6, he says, as to the law, I was blameless. But even Paul is saying that that was not sinless. Blameless and sinless aren't the same. Blameless and perfect are not the same. They were not the same. And, and I've never been sinless. I've never been, been perfect. Paul takes a look at himself and has to admit, has to recognize that he's, he hasn't yet obtained this resurrection from the dead. This sinless life. But Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time looking at himself in this passage. He kind of takes a quick glance and then turns his attention elsewhere. Paul's using um, running language. He's using the language of Olympics, of foot races. It's Greek culture. They had races all the time. To one end to the other, around a 
um, a track uh, in a, a coliseum, a stadium-like setting. He's using that kind of language. Runners, runners don't look at themselves. Runners, if you're running, while you're running, you're looking at yourself. You, you, there's something, something's going to go wrong. You don't, you don't examine your clothes. You don't watch your feet. You don't look at your hands. You, you have to watch where you're going. You have to look ahead. And that's, in essence, the kind of language that Paul's using in this passage. He looks at himself, but he does so briefly because then he turns his attention to look at his target, verse 13. Actually, that's probably not a fair word. He doesn't look at it. He doesn't just kind of glance at it. Did you, did you notice the language that he uses in verses 13 and 14? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Paul has a, a one-track mind. One thing I do. I, I do one thing. There's no, there's no ADD. There's no multitasking. You ever tried multitasking? You know you don't multitask. You always do one thing at a time. You may try to do five things, but you're really doing five things one at a time, but bouncing back and forth between them. It's not really doing two things at once. It's doing one thing at once and pretending like you're doing several things at once, but you're really not. There's no such thing as multi... We can't do that. Our, our brains, our bodies won't allow that. Paul's fixed on one thing. Not two things, not three things, not, not undecided, not bouncing back and forth between things. It's one thing. One, one thing I do. He's got his eyes fixed on... One thing, it's single focus, single minded. One thing I do. If someone were to ask you what's your one thing, what would you answer? Don't say it out loud. But I mean, could you say one thing? Well, it's kind of like six things. I really kind of have... Now, you understand. Um, Paul's not saying here... In the list, it's not like he's saying don't vacuum the den. Don't do your homework. Don't do your job. Um, don't take food to your neighbor. Uh, don't... Uh, mow your lawn. That's not what he means. He's, he's not ruling out those sort of day-to-day -day chores and activities and requirements that we have to do. It's, it's, the, it's the theme. What's the theme? What's the theme of your life? What's the goal? What are all those things that you do day in and day out? What are they aiming at? What are they looking for? What are they targeting? What's your one thing? Do you have one thing or do you kind of, I'm trying to multitask. I'm trying to multi-theme my life. You know, my, the theme of my life is, you know, okay, my own comfort and pleasure 
and Clemson football, and okay, sure, Jesus. And I mean, that's what we do. That's the theme of our life. We don't, we don't do one thing. We're too distracted. Paul says there's, there's one thing that he does. And, and he doesn't tell us what that thing is until the beginning of verse 14. It's pressing on towards the goal. But notice he told, tells us that that pressing on has two parts. He has one thing he does, but it involves two parts. He forgets what's behind him. I've, I've watched... It's actually probably happened to the Olympics. I can't pull up... But I, even in, in high school, I, I remember watching runners lose races because they looked behind them. They took a glance over a shoulder. I've seen runners lose because they looked somewhere else. They stopped to fix their shorts and got past. They took a glance over a shoulder and got past on the other side. We lose when we look back. Paul says, I forget what's behind me. I, the things that are past, the things that, that lie behind, I put them out of my Mind. They don't matter anymore. Runners, runners probably get this better than anyone. The scenery you've seen, the people you've passed, the people you started with, the, the drink station that you should have grabbed a, a cup of water a mile ago. I mean, it's all back there. You can't look back. You press on. You have to forget what's behind you. But you kind of have to ask, what's Paul forgetting? What's behind him? What lies behind that he would want to forget? Okay, look, the easy one, his sin, right? I mean, you remember Paul before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. And he's watching over the coats of those who would stone Stephen in Acts 7. He's the, he's the coat check guy at the Stephen Stoning event. And he gave his approval all along. And then on the heels of that, he actually has written permission to go out and arrest and beat and perhaps put to death Christians. Surely Paul wants to forget that. Surely, at the very least, what lies behind Paul, there's some heinous sin back there. I mean, think about your own life. Think about how easily we get bogged down with guilt and shame over sin that, I mean, we're not talking this morning. We're talking high school, college, Decades ago, maybe a year ago, maybe three years ago, but it's, we get bogged down by guilt and shame because we don't forget. We hang on to that sin and it hangs on to us and we want to cling to it. I don't know why. But we, 
aren't very good at forgetting sins of the past. Psalm 103 tells us that God removes our sins from us as far as east is from west. That's a far way. That's a long way. There's a huge gap between east and west. You recognize that, right? Because every step you take east, there's still more west behind you, and you're never going to catch up. You never get to the end of east, and you never get to the end of west. That's how far away your sin is removed from you if you're in Christ. Jeremiah 31, God forgives iniquity and He will remember their sin not for an hour, not for a day, no more. God takes your sin and casts it out into the sea and we go, wait, 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 I might need that. I want to hold on to that. Surely Paul wants to forget his guilt and his shame. He, he wants to forget his sin. He wants to forget his past. Some of you are perhaps thinking, um, Jeff, you've been here four years. You don't know my past. You don't know what's back there. You haven't known me long enough to know what's back there. Well, it's Paul's got murder. So at the very least... He can compete with you. Forgetting what's behind. But it's not just his sin he wants to forget. Because, you know, it's actually been a little while since Paul has mentioned specific sin. It's only been a few verses since he mentioned righteousness. Just in the previous passage, he said, look at all the things I once counted as credit to my account. Hebrew of Hebrews. Which, which group of Jews did I belong to? Oh, the Pharisees. Beat that. Which tribe did I belong to? Benjamin, top two. Re- with regard to the law, blameless. Who did I study under? I've got a Harvard Law degree. What you got? Clemson, really? That's going to be your claim? I studied under Gamaliel. I mean... Everything that, that we would look to for credit in this life, Paul goes, I got the trunk car. I've got you beaten. That was the list he just finished giving us. Surely, not only does he want to forget his sins, but he also wants to forget his righteousness. Whatever he would claim to his credit, all that great stuff I did, He's already told us he counted it as... The Greek word is... Dung is nice. Dung is the clean version that I'm allowed to use in a pulpit. He counts it as rubbish. that's That's what he thinks of all that righteousness he has piled up. He would forget his sins. He would forget his righteous deeds. He doesn't want to dwell on them... I think Paul also, you remember where he is, right? You know he's writing from prison. He would also, he would forget his sins, he he forgets his righteousness. He also would forget the good old days. You know, it's entirely possible that you and I spend far too much time pining away for God's mercies of yesterday. We, man, I remember... 
that, you know, there was a year when every sermon I preached, a hundred people came forward and got saved. And a and hundred people, all the good old days. Okay, that never happened. I'm just making that up. You realize, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want you to think that I actually happened somewhere in my back. I'm just using an illustration, right? Paul's not going, you know, there was a time when I wasn't shipwrecked. There was a time when I wasn't beaten. There was a time when I wasn't falsely arrested and falsely accused and held in prison. He's not even pining away for the so-called good old days of God's mercy in Christ. Do we remember too much? Do we try to latch on to a little too much of the past so that we lose sight of both the present and the future? Do we, do we remember sins large and small? Okay, that one has got to be too big for Christ to to pay for. Surely His blood doesn't cover that one because that's pretty big. I'm going to hang on to that one. We hang on to too much of the past. Good deeds big enough that maybe maybe I don't need Jesus after all because I've got some pretty good stuff piled up in my past. I've got some pretty good stuff in my closet. You want to take a look at my closet? You want to see how good I've been? Maybe I don't need Jesus after all. You should see what I've got in here. I've got some pretty cool stuff. We, we hang on to the past. We remember too much. That, that was Mrs. Lot's problem. God delivers them, and as He rains down <clears throat> destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, she looks back. She longs for something. She misses something. Oh, those, were, those were the good old days. Oh, I remember those people fondly. I remember that place. She looks back and turned to a pillar of salt. <clears throat> Paul would forget what lies behind and press on. <clears throat> Straining is the word he uses in verse 13. You, you picture that runner, don't you? Leaning, lunging, grimacing. <clears throat> he's worn, he's tired. You, you, can, you can picture that runner. I, I do that like when I run to the refrigerator. You know, by that time, I'm, I'm he's straining for what lies ahead. Every ounce of his energy is given to that. You almost, you almost hear Violet's mom, eyes on the prize, Violet. Eyes on the prize. Charlie in the chocolate factory. Paul presses on towards his target. He looks at himself briefly. He <clears throat> turns his attention and, and looks ahead, looks to where He's going, he looks at his, his target, the aim of, of sinless perfection. <clears throat> and then Paul takes a brief look at his people. Verses 15 and 16 aren't, they're not spiteful. See, it would be easy for us to read those verses and think, 
to, there's the looking down your nose at people, right? Well, this is true, and if you don't believe it, well, you'll understand it one day. We read it with that kind of a tone. We read it with that tone because that's the tone I would use to say it. Paul looks at his people and goes, not everyone understands this. Not everyone is, has reached that level of Christian maturity. Not everyone has the mind of Christ that they would consider others better than themselves. Not everyone has the, the humble mind of Christ that they would seek the good of others, not only their own interest. Not everyone is as single-minded, dead-set, fixed on the life that is to come, on the resurrection, on sinless perfection that is promised and guaranteed for us in Christ. Not everyone is pressing on towards that goal. Some are, some are immature. Some are, are double-minded. Some are distracted by the things of this world. Jesus, yes, but my comfort, too. God wants me to be happy. And if I have to forsake His Word in order to do that, that's what He wants. Yes, Jesus, but also... Paul says there are, there are some, there's some in the church in Philippi, there are some in the church today who haven't reached that level of spiritual maturity. It, Paul says essentially that spiritual maturity means, it means recognizing that we haven't arrived. As soon as we start to think we are somebody, we prove the fact that we are still immature in the faith. That maturity in the faith recognizes I'm not there. Just when we think we gain victory over sin in one area or another, we discover there's sin in our hearts that we didn't know existed before. Or we realize something is sin that we once thought was fine. Spiritual maturity means recognizing that we've not yet arrived, we, we see that incompleteness as a, a spark, an encouragement to keep running the race. You know, more than one commentator on this passage referred to that famous race between the tortoise and the hare. There's no way on earth a turtle beats a rabbit in a race. I, not too long ago, was by Lake Ida at the roundabout on Lindsay Lane. And I'm telling you, there was a turtle that I, I swear was part snapping turtle, part like giant alligator. It was this big, huge... If you were coming the wrong way around the roundabout, come out of the roundabout and head south on Lindsay Lane, your car would have damage. I'm thinking, there's no way this guy's going to make it. I mean, I came this close to stopping, and then I realized, he'd eat me. The turtles don't win that race. Except that the rabbit decided to take a nap. He decided, 
The gun goes off. He takes off running. He's like, I'm a hare. That's a tortoise. We win. That's how this works. I'll have to go take a nap. And, and you know the phrase, you're, you know slow and steady wins the race. More than one person mentioned that race and said that is in essence the Christian life. In so many ways we take nothing for granted. We slow and steady with our eyes fixed on that finish line. With our eyes fixed on Christ. With our eyes fixed on the resurrection. With our eyes fixed on the life that is to come. We run that race. I wonder, I wonder how many, I wonder what Olympic officials would do. Imagine the runners line up for the 10,000 meter run. 10,000 meters is a long way. To the 10,000 meter run. The gun goes off, they take off. One of the runners takes two steps and stops and just stands there. I wonder what Olympic officials would do. I, I'm Sir, you've, you've got to get off the track. Ma'am, you, you have to get off the track. No, no, I'm, I'm in this race. I mean, I'm, I'm participating, in this, I'm competing in this race. But, but you're just standing there. They've already made two or three laps around this track. You're just standing there. You don't stand a chance to win. Why? No, 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 I'm, I'm in the race. I promise, I'm, I belong here. I'm supposed to be here. I mean, surely people would drag her up. You're not really, nobody in the stands thinks you're actually in this race. Because you're just standing there. I kind of wonder, though, whether we don't do every day, do that every day with the Christian life. Hey, they started. They, they raised a hand. They walked an aisle. They got baptized. Do they look like they're running? Do they, do they look like they're giving any effort at all? Is there any change to their life at all? No, but, but they're in this race. This is great. They're just standing there. We set a, a bar a little too low for the Christian life, it seems. No, no evidence of a changed life. No evidence of, of running this race. No evidence of single-mindedly, dead-set, fixed on making sinless perfection their own. That doesn't happen in this life, you, you realize. I mean... We, I feel obligated to say that again, to remind you all over again. That doesn't happen in this life. But that is our goal. That is the aim. That is the, the one thing Paul does. It, it ought to be the one thing for which we strive. But don't miss this. Paul's not saying that you run and at the end, because you ran, God will accept you. He's not saying that. He's not saying that the more he strives for Christ, the more God will love him. That's not what Paul's saying. Because don't miss the very key phrase of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ 
has already, same verb, made me his own. Paul runs at all. Paul cares at all. Paul strives at all. Paul presses on at all. Because he already belongs to Christ. He's already assured of the resurrection. He's already assured of the life that is to come. But rather than take it for granted, he would, with every ounce of his energy, strive to make it his. Paul's not saying you save yourself by your effort. Is salvation all of grace? Absolutely. Does the obedience of Christ perfectly satisfy the demands of the law of God? Absolutely. Is His blood shed on the cross absolutely sufficient to wash away my sins? Absolutely. Do I rest in grace? Absolutely. Am I in Jesus? I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. Is that true? Absolutely. But resting in grace is not the same as resting on your laurels. We say rest on your laurels as that that idiom for I do nothing. For us, rest means, well, it it, it means the the form I took yesterday afternoon around two. Laid out on the couch. I think a television was on, but I wasn't paying attention to it. Shut the brain off. Close the eyes. There may have been drool. For us, that's rest. Do nothing. Paul says resting in grace, resting in Christ, is not the same thing as resting on your laurels. We strive, we work, we strain, we press on, we fix our eyes on that goal of sinless perfection. Why? Precisely because we rest in Christ. Precisely because we rest in grace. Paul says that a salvation that urges you to strive, to to press on, to pursue the goal of holiness with all your effort, it's resting in grace, but not on your laurels. Oh, that God would, by His grace, by His Spirit, fix our eyes on that one thing. That that would be our great joy. That the goal of, of sinless perfection, of the resurrected life, would be our one thing. The thing on which our eyes are fixed. The thing around which our calendar is set. The thing around which every relationship orbits. Oh, that that would be our one thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your grace, we need your mercy, that Christ, that holiness, that sinless perfection, that the resurrected life would be our one thing, the one thing on which our eyes are fixed, our, the one thing for which our hearts long, 
the one thing around which we would organize calendars and relationships and, and all that we do. Father, we pray for the grace to strive. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.